Thanks for having me back. The last time I was here was for Jonathan Gregwood's uh, baptism, which I think must have been a couple of years ago now, right? So it's been wonderful to uh, prepare this sermon from Jeremiah chapter 30. When I first started teaching at Ridley, I decided there were a couple of books of the Bible that I wanted to continue to work on and deal with kind of not just at a devotional level, but kind of a higher level. And Jeremiah was one of the books that I chose. So of Old Testament books, I think I've probably preached from Jeremiah more than from most other books. It's uh, wonderful to be part of this series on the book of hope from Jeremiah chapters 30 to 33. So let me pray. Uh, Our Heavenly Father, please may you now shed light before our feet. Please may we now know how better to live in the light of your promises. Please would you give us energy to listen and to receive these your precious gifts that we might know Christ and make him known. Uh, For it's in his name we pray. Amen. We love turning back the clock, and not just at the end of daylight savings. If you track with what Australians watch on TV, you'll pick up that we like renovation shows. And what are renovation shows other than trying to turn back the clock? We turn back the clock on a house that we might be renovating, or we turn back the clock on our own level of fitness in The Biggest Loser. We try and recapture our youth. That's a kind of turning back the clock. Some people want to get to that day when they can wear their wedding dress again. Or as for me, it's not so much my wedding dress, but I like going on hikes to prove them that I'm as useful, youthful, useful, youthful as ever. We dream wistfully about days gone by. It might be that you dream of those days in the 1990s when communism had fallen and the West had triumphed. It seemed like the end of history. Or it might be that you're one of those people who dreams of the 1970s and Whitlam and progressive politics. Or it might be that you dream of the 1950s when apparently everyone had happy families, as I was reminded of when I grew up and watched Happy Days. We dream, we wistfully try and remember days gone by. Indeed, today is... Remembrance Sunday, Uh, it's now exactly 100 years since the first poppy appeal when we raised money to support those whose husbands had died in the First World War. The First World War, some people don't, well they don't remember it because no one is alive now who lived through it effectively, but in Australian mythology we remember the First World War as forming who we are as a nation, as a federation. We love turning back the clock. We love wistfully 
nostalgically remembering a certain moment in the past when everything seemed just right. In fact, looking back nostalgically is a powerful motivator if we're experiencing a present crisis. The people of Israel looked back nostalgically from their exile to days before when everything was just right. Listen to these few verses from Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captives required us of songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Well, in chapter 29 of Jeremiah, you've no doubt heard a sermon on it recently. The people have been asked not just think back to Jerusalem, but also to plant and work in their exile, indeed work for the prosperity of the city. And it's certainly true that Jerusalem had to the people of Jerusalem who were now in exile had to settle down and, and live and work, serve their present community. But the next few chapters, 30 to 33, are Jeremiah's preaching about not just returning to Jerusalem, but how to think about their lives after exile, not just going back, but thinking about the future. It would be really easy for them to get stuck in imagining that life after exile would be a lot like it used to be. But Jeremiah's trying to paint a big the clock, but turning it forward instead. It's interesting that in this chapter, in chapter 30, Jeremiah is not just merely turning it, talking about exile and return. That's the basic geography. You came out, you're going back. Now, the language that Jeremiah uses is not so much exile and return, but the language of alienation and restoration. There's something much bigger at stake here. It's not just about what plot of land do you live on. It's a bigger spiritual question of where your hopes, your dreams, your aspirations lie. And of course, how could things just go back to being like they were before? After such a traumatic experience, of course, things were going to be different. computer is doing this weird thing at the moment. It's taking thousands of files randomly and putting it into the trash folder. Uh, that's 
and every couple of weeks I have to go onto office.com and restore the files. That's actually the word that's used, restore the files, so that they're no longer merely placed in the bin, but now back where they should be on my computer, in the right file. But the, the program uses the language of restore, which is not exactly what Jeremiah is talking about, right? Because restoring doesn't mean just going from one place back to the old place. For Jeremiah, it's a, a revolution. It's a revival. It's spiritual, not just a matter of geography. Can I point out, if you have the Bibles uh, open from Jeremiah 30 and 31, how I get this? Look, at, look with me at these various verses which show that Jeremiah is making not a point about geography, but about spirituality. So from chapter 30, verse 2. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write in a book all the words I've spoken to you. This is not just something for the immediate future. This is something for the long-range future. It's so important, it's such long-range plans that it has to be written down so that generations after generations will recall it. Or in verse 3, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will bring them back to the land. It's both restoring their fortunes and bringing them back to the land. It's not just that they're being, being brought back to the land. There's something much bigger at stake here. Their fortunes are being restored. And did you notice in verse 3 that... Uh, God is speaking of Israel and Judah. Israel has long since been annihilated. There is no Israel when Jeremiah is preaching. There's only the southern kingdom of Judah. But God is saying here, there was a day when I will restore Israel and Judah. This is not merely turning back the clock. This is doing something extraordinarily new. I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers and they shall take possession of it. Or if you look down a few verses to verse 8. It shall come to pass in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off your neck, that's the oppressor, and I will burst your bonds and foreigners shall no more make a servant of him. There's going to be a day in the future for Israel when they don't have to make alliances with Babylon or with Egypt or with Assyria or with Persia. There's going to be a day when they have no overlords. And for a tiny, tiny, tiny little country in the ancient Near East, surrounded by imperial powers, this was fanciful. Or verse 9, they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. David was in the past. Do they get another David? This is a future that's idealized. This is a future beyond their imagining. Or verse 10, it's a future without fear. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, nor be dismayed. I will save you from far away and your offspring from the land of captivity. 
a day when there is no fear. Or verse 16, a day when the enemies of God universally will be obliterated. All who devour you shall be devoured. All your foes, every one of them, shall go into captivity. This is a day when all the other nations of the world will be punished, but Israel, God's people, will be free. Those who plunder you shall be plundered, and all who prey on you I'll make a prey. I will restore health to you, and your wounds I will heal, declares the Lord. Or, continuing in verse 17, they have called you an outcast. It is Zion for whom no one cares. Jerusalem was the city's name, but if you talked about Jerusalem in its ideal state, it was called Zion. This is not just God taking the people back. This is God giving people a vision for something wholly new. Yes, in verse 18, the fortunes of the people will be renewed. They'll have tents again. But in verse 21, something dramatic. Their prince shall be one of themselves. Their ruler shall come out from their midst. I will make him draw near. He shall approach me. For who would dare of himself to approach me, declares the Lord. One day their king will be the person who leads them into the temple. In days gone by, the king could not go into the temple. Only the high priest could do that. But there will come a day, Jeremiah is preaching in verse 21, when their prince, their king, will lead them in worship as well. There'll be a king priest. And verse 22, At that day you shall be my people, and I will be your God. The whole point of this is not merely a change of location, but that they will know the Lord, know that he cares for them, that they belong to him. This is not just a material goal. This is a spiritual goal, a relational goal, when they will know the Lord. Though, as the Lord says in verse 24, the fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intentions of his mind. In the latter days, you will understand this. For the time being, all this ideal talk is incomprehensible. They can't understand. They don't need just a removalist to get them back to Jerusalem. They need a renovator, someone who's going to spiritually revive the nation. They actually need something more than a restorationist. They need a redeemer. As verse 11 of chapter 31 says, The Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed from his hands too strong for him. A time is coming, the Lord is saying, when you will not just have Jerusalem the city, but you will know and be known by the great Redeemer. There will be a spiritual revolution, not just a physical relocation. This passage, Jeremiah chapters 30 to 33, is not just a blueprint for how many camels you need to get back 
to Jerusalem or how many wagons or what supplies you should order. This passage is a spiritual handbook for how to grow in hope. The restoration of the people to the land is not merely them changing their address. It's showing that they are part of the cosmic plan of God. This passage is not about turning back the clock in autumn, but how to turn the clock forward in spring. This, these chapters are the theological foundation for the future, not an operational guide to moving house. These chapters teach God's people about how to have hope. These chapters teach God's people how to have hope. It's so critical for Christians. We need hope. Your church needs hope. So many Christians are feeling the tide go out in Australia on the Christian foundations of our culture. You might be feeling the grief or the frustration yourselves. And it is true that Australia has built its culture on both Christian and classical virtues. We've built our foundation, our civilization on faith, hope, and love, which are other person centered. But we've also built our foundation as a nation on the more classical virtues prudence, temperance, justice, and courage. Virtues that are focused inward rather than outward. I was down at the uh, Shrine of Remembrance just last month and there's a whole lot of war memorials there in the Botanical Gardens or just outside the Botanical Gardens. I went into one which is erected by the Maltese of Melbourne in memory of, in, in gratitude for, the way Australians fought in the battles of, Battle of Malta. Really interestingly, on the floor of this small memorial are the words faith, hope and love. And on the walls, the pictures and the text were built under the four topics of prudence, temperance, justice and courage. A classic, classic picture of what we are as a nation, standing on the foundations of faith, hope and love and building upon them those other virtues of prudence, temperance, justice, and courage. Well, it might be that Australia is leaving behind something of its Christian foundations, but that doesn't mean the church does. Of course, when Paul writes that uh, of faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love, it's true. But I think actually in many of our churches in Melbourne, we're pretty good at love and we're pretty good at faith, but we've actually dropped the ball on hope. Jeremiah is talking up the virtue of hope. And of all places in our community, surely the church is a place where this should be our specialty. So what would Inner West Church look like if it was characterised by hope? 
What can you do to honor Jeremiah's prophecies that this place might be a place of hope? Well, one, you talk about heaven. You don't be embarrassed. Two, we talk about those, our loved ones in the Lord, who've gone to be with the Lord. What it means for us to look forward to seeing them again. But more than that, this congregation, if it believed in the virtue of hope, will be a congregation that doesn't panic when the world leaves Christianity behind or doesn't resign itself becoming passive and inactive. No, hope makes us active in the world. It would mean that when we pray in church or in missional communities or by ourselves, we pray for our governments. That would be a sign that we believe in hope. When we experience adversity, that would not mean that the Lord is being unfavorable to us, as if the only way we can evaluate God's kindness is if we're materially prosperous. I was talking to a guy this week who I spoke to a few months ago, and he said to me, uh, he's not sure that God's evolved in his life, he's really struggling to engage with his Christian faith, so I've been praying for a number of months that he would. This week I met him and his finances have taken a really good turn, so now he says he can see that the Lord's involved in his life again. And if Inner West wants to demonstrate the fact that it's virtue is in hopefulness, we need to learn how to do Two things at once, to chew gum and walk at the same time. That is, we're a both-and church, not an either-or church. If we're a church that believes in hopefulness, we are aware of our now, our circumstances, but we see the now in relation to the not yet. We're aware of the importance of the material world, but we're also aware of the spiritual world which transcends what we see and touch. That's a church that's overflowing with hopefulness. You might know the line, Witch in the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. It begins with kids being evacuated from London to a place in the countryside where they'll be safe from the Germans' bombs. And when they get to the countryside, of course, they travel through the wardrobe into an imaginary world. It's a beautiful children's story, but do you know why C.S. Lewis wrote it? He's trying to say that the only way we can have hope for the future is if we can imagine a new world. The old world was bombing us, and destroying us. A new world is one where we can imagine a better future. He was trying to rebuild Christian civilization. I'm only asking us to rebuild 
the Christian church. For in the church amongst God's people, we have believed and confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord. There is no one more powerful than him. Therefore, we can have hope. We preach Christ as Lord. We believe that the power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in your heart and in mine. His power is available to us. That should give us hope. At his resurrection, Jesus said that all authority in heaven and earth have been given to him. All nations sit below his feet. That should give us hope. In Revelation 11, we're told that the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and Christ. There is ample reason to be hopeful and there are lots of ways in this congregation that we can practice hopefulness just as Jeremiah teaches us. There is life beyond exile but there is never life beyond Christ. Uh, Let me pray and then you can take some moments to reflect as well. We recognise, Heavenly Father, that faith, hope and love are great Christian virtues. We ask you today to help us grow in hope as individuals and as a congregation. Please may we imagine a new kind of world in which this is true for us and for your church. And for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.